Hey everyone, welcome to episode 70 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. And thanks to Michael Howard, Chris Rice, Eric Stenslin, Perry Shalat, and Jack Curran for helping produce the podcast. Your generous support at the $20 and above level is appreciated more than you can possibly know. This podcast is for you guys, the listeners, so thank you all. Uh, this week is Sangita Day. Uh, man, we had an awesome conversation um, about inspiration, about workshops, uh, about females and landscape photography, um, about Nikon. I mean, it's, it was just a fun conversation. And yeah, just a reminder, we've got uh, image critiques happening over on the Facebook group for the podcast. So go search for F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen over on Facebook and uh, try to find the group. And it's been a really great uh place to share images and talk about the craft of photography and uh, I think y'all will enjoy it hope you enjoy this week's podcast thanks for tuning in so uh Sangeeta Day thanks for coming on to uh, f-stop collaborate and listen thanks for having me Matt my pleasure hey it's uh thanks for reaching out and um I really enjoy uh your photography and I like some of the stuff you've been putting up over on the West Coast Photographers uh, Facebook group, um, which I, I love that. I don't know about you. I, I really like that group. Oh, my God. That group, um, you know, that group is by invite only. And I don't know how I got into that group because it's just <laughs> so above my leave. <laughs> um, yeah, there's some, wow, there's some really good talent in there for sure. Yeah, yeah. Best of the best. Of course. I mean, I remember the day Alex Noriega joined the group. I was like, should I still be in this group or should I just drop out? (laughs) (laughs) The thing with Alex, he is such a down to earth guy. Like he's, um, but yeah, his, his work is pretty fantastic. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so you live in the, in the Bay area, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Cool. So I also understand that you're a, you're a pediatric neuropsychologist. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of cool. We have a sort of similar background. I I have my master's degree in clinical psychology. I know. And, you know, I heard about that and I was really curious about that. Like maybe that would come up during our conversation today. (laughs) Yeah, I I think I think it can it can make a make an appearance for sure, because one of the topics I wanted to talk talk about is related to that. So we'll get into that, I think. Uh Um, But uh, I'm assuming as a pediatric uh, neuropsychologist you in the bay area you're an incredibly busy woman yeah <laughs> well yeah sort of, yes <laughs> um yeah if the traffic wasn't that bad i would probably be in, in my office a little more than i am <laughs> sure so so uh i'm curious like how do you how do you make it work with landscape photography because i see you know you're traveling all over the world taking amazing photographs and um also uh you have a, I'm assuming, full-time day job. So how do you, how do you juggle those two things? So Matt, I knew this is how it will work out for me. So I actually gave up the hospital job a long, long time ago. Um, I work for myself and when I take time off, it doesn't mean that time disappears. I have to make up for it because when I come back, then I have to work through vacations and I work on weekends. Um, because I do have clients and, you know, they need to be seen. So somehow, you know, it works out in the end. But yes, um, it sometimes is hard. But, you know, given that I have the flexibility with my time, 
um, it it works out. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> when before you uh, left the hospital, were you into photography back then? No, actually, I would say that I got into photography relatively seriously early in 2015. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I was a traveler all along. Like, you know, I mean, for the past 20 years, like I have been traveling all over. Um, I think I tell people that even before I held my first DSLR, I think I had traveled to over 40 countries. Oh. <laughs> so I, I am a compulsive traveler. I mean, you know, there is this curiosity I have, like what's out there that takes me to places that probably um, goes beyond um, photography. Sure. So, so, you know, a lot of people I hear that um, photography has helped them go out a little more. But for me, it was the reverse. I was already traveling, so I started bringing along camera to just capture those experiences. And at some point, it just evolved into a little more serious photography. But it's only in 2015 that, you know, I got my full frame and um, I delved right into it when I found out that my camera doesn't come with an auto button. So I had to read the manual to get to the point where I wanted to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I bought my first full frame in 2013, end of 2012, beginning of 2013. Ah. So. I'm not that much ahead of you for sure. <laughs> uh, it feels like it was a long time ago for me, though, even though it's only been like five or six years. Um, uh huh. I don't know if, if you feel if you feel the same way or not. Um, you know, I mean, I still feel I'm relatively new because when I talk to people, it seems they have been doing photography for much longer than I have. <laughs> Um, but still you can see that it's their journey. I mean, like, you know, even for Alex Noriega, I can go and see, look up some of his work from, you know, from five years ago to from what he's doing now. It's just a tremendous change you see. So for me, that's how I measure my work from where I was to what I'm doing today. And, you know, no matter how much time has gone by in the middle, if I'm doing better than what I was doing two years ago, I'm on a good path. Yeah. Have, have you found um, that any of your photographic skills or, or your kind of your approach to photography, have you felt um, have you felt it regress at all over the time or has it been a steady journey upwards or kind of what is your progression felt like from your own personal perspective? So um, hmm, I'll have to go back um, a little bit on this, actually. Because it didn't start from day one. I mean, like everybody else I know, um, when I started photography, uh, the first thing I wanted to do was like go and, you know, phot photograph all the iconic places, um, which is very common, I think, with everybody. For sure. And yeah, and what's funny is that right away um, I got uh, some, some publications and uh, that gave me a sugar rush at that point. It was like, you know, I got a high out of those. But something happened and I stopped actually. I didn't touch my camera after that for six months and I had no idea what was going on. And I think uh, my photography journey started uh, in 2016. That's when actually I contacted Erin Babnik because she was leading a workshop to Death Valley. And I would say that was when, you know, after coming back from Death Valley, I was totally transformed. Um, that's when, you know, I started thinking about things more deeply. And 
I realized at that point that what I was doing, actually, I was not being creative before that. I was just photographing. I was just doing what everybody else was doing. Mm. Um, to make a deeper connection, you know, you have to think about it. You have to be creative. You you really have to have those conversations with yourself. Um, and this kind of deeper connection is just important for anything, you know, any relationship or relationship with yourself or even with your art. Uh, any shallow relationship that just relies on aesthetics is not going to go too far. And I think that's what I felt was happening. And since then, you know, it has been a steady journey. There are times when I wouldn't touch camera, but it's not because, you know, there is something going on, but it's because of work and, you know, I'm not feeling inspired. My clinical work would be very hectic. So other than that, you know, it, my work kind of balances out uh, my photography and, you know, the photography helps me go back to my work. It, uh, they both are just an important part of my life. Yeah, it's, I think it's interesting. You know, I actually had a fairly similar experience um, when, for whatever reason, when I moved uh, from Colorado to Oregon and now I'm back in Colorado. Mm -hmm. But when I when I moved mm -hmm. to Oregon, I kind of was like, I really want to take pictures of all these awesome, uh, <laughs> iconic waterfalls. And, and like, right. I was chasing all these iconic scenes and, and, and it, it just didn't speak to me at all. Like there was no creativity as you were saying, like, I was like, okay, I think, I think Mark Adamus put his tripod holes, you know, right here <laughs> for this, uh, for this, uh, Eloa Falls shot. And, um, I think, you know, there's probably there was probably a leaf over here on this rock, so I better find a leaf to put over there. You know, like <laughs> like when you when you take pictures that way, like you're not using your creative mind. You're 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 just trying to uh, execute something that you saw someone else execute, and I think they're two different things, right? Like the your right. experience as an artist is completely different when you approach it when you approach a scene that you've maybe never seen anyone shoot before mm -hmm. um and you're shooting it for the first time in your mind and it's to me like that's that's photography that's landscape photography you're 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 making images based on what you see in front of you for the mm -hmm. first time right um so one of the things you had on your on your website which really spoke to me and i'm wondering if it has a little bit to do with your uh uh, neuropsychology background, but um, you talk a lot about um, photography as a language and um, right. communicating your emotions through your photography. So I, I really wanted to explore that topic with you because um, I'd love to hear kind of what 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 is that language for you? What how is photography a language? Ah. Uh. Um, Matt, I think it would be easier to talk with you because you're also trained in psychology. You know, um, there's a lot of uh, things that goes into therapy, although I don't do therapy, but there's a lot of um, understanding of nonverbal body language that you have to look into a patient when mm -hmm. they are talking. And I have found that, you know, throughout my graduate training school, when I was, you know, seeing patients and stuff, I, I would see that Sometimes they would say things, they are verbally very facile. They can, they can gloss their way through using their words um, and try to kind of stay away from real problems when their body language is saying something mm -hmm. else. And then when I started working with children, that, that's when it became even more important because they don't verbalize mm -hmm. a lot. 
And they might tell you that, you know, you ask them a question and they will just nudge and wouldn't say an answer. So just getting inside their world, you have to say, you have to see how they interact, you know, with the tests that I'm giving them, how they're interacting with me. Um, what is their first reaction when you present something, Noel item to them? And that that nonverbal kind of interaction is really very um, fascinating to me. Um, I have been always been fascinated by the power of like visual media, and I have tried to pull that in in my clinical work for as long as I have remembered. Um, I'm always looking for ways to help maximize the developmental potential of the children I see. So for me, the explicit use of language is actually far less important than a child's ability to communicate. Mm. Um, I always tell parents when they're worried about, you know, the language development in their children, I'll tell them that, you know, can your child point? Can he communicate what they want? Because for now, um, the speech will come. We can provide the support for that. But can they communicate what they need? I mean, whatever body language they are using. And if that is happening, then I would be a little Mm -hmm. less concerned. So, um, you know, we can support them through visual medium. Um, I often see children, uh, one of my actually expertise is in autism. Um, and these children struggle with communication and related social challenges. Um, but their unusual uh, neurological profile actually makes them see the world in unique ways. And um, it is this unique out-of-the-box vision that I see in them actually kind of uh, I try to harness in my own work that I do as a photographer. Um, it's hard to explain, but um, it, it becomes my own language, you know, more so when I'm editing a photograph than when I'm in the field. I mean, it's both like, you know, 50-50 mm-hmm. for me. But um, I think you would know that, you know, when you are editing, that's when your current emotions are like, you know, get portrayed up and they, they dictate how your final image mm-hmm. would look like. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I've noticed, um, I don't know if you've noticed this yourself, but um, depending on my mood or like the type of week I had at work, um, if I'm editing a photo, it's going to have a much different results mm-hmm. depending on how I'm feeling. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. I'm, and you can go back like five years later and edit that same image and you will be in a different frame of mind and it would come out looking entirely yeah, different. That's interesting. Um, I'm curious for you, how does that translate into your approach um, in the field? Like how 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 is that visual medium that you're seeing um, in front of you mm-hmm. get translated uh, through through a visual language? Um, hmm. so, you know, visualization is always like a, you know, as, as I'm, as I'm progressing actually, um, in photography, um, we were talking about, you know, photographing these iconic locations, which is such an emotionless process that you (laughs) go through. And, and I think like I had talked about this in the past that, you know, it's a developmental progression for any photographer. Like we start with that process because any photographer has to mm-hmm. learn the ABCs. Um, you know, for a child, you have to learn ABC before you expect them to get into creative writing work. It doesn't happen in one day. So I think like that's where I was starting off, you know, when I was perfecting my techniques like in the field. And now I feel like, you know, I am less focused on the technique. It just happens more intuitively. I'm more focused in the scene in front of me. Um, 
when I go out, like, you know, for the few other photographers, I have to tell you, I'm the last one mm. to pull out my camera. And I think I click much less than other photographers. And I'm fairly notorious about it. Like people will say, aren't you going to pull out your camera? What are you doing? I have had Mark Adams yelling at me that, Sangeeta, why are you standing? Why are you not taking pictures? And why are you not taking pictures standing right where I'm That's standing? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's very hard to describe, you know, sometimes the scene speaks to me like I, I want this. And sometimes, you know, the scene could be speaking to five other photographers standing next to me, but I cannot find anything when I'm visualizing it in my head, when I'm seeing it, it's, it's mm -hmm. doing nothing to me. Um, and that's the kind of connection, it's, it's so hard to put into words. Maybe if I had known this <laughs> question, I would have given more thought to it and, you know, to be able to articulate it more clearly. That's okay. I mean, that, that just, that wouldn't be as fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it's funny. Um, it's funny you talked about shooting icons as not having as the emotion. Um, I think for some people, shooting icons is like it's like the pinnacle of their photography emotion. And I know I've personally experienced like certain scenes that I've, you know, you see them like for years and years and years and years, and you've always wanted to shoot it, and then you finally get there and you see it, and the light materializes, and you know, you just you're ecstatic. So I think mm -hmm. I think there can be an emotional response, but I don't think it's the same type of emotional response. I think actually, you know, um, I'm sorry I interrupted you, but you're fine. Yeah, yeah. No, but right away as you were saying this, I was thinking I had heard the interview of Sarah Marino and Ron Corsuka. Mm -hmm. That how do you say that last name? Coscarosa. Coscarosa. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I remember, I clearly remember, you know, from every interview you do, I walk out with one probably tagline. <laughs> and I remember from that interview, he had said one thing that, you know, you go to these iconic locations and you feel like you are doing something different because you got these, you know, amazing light conditions or, you know, some cloud or lenticular cloud or something. But that's like winning a lottery. You had nothing to do with it. Right. And and when he said that, it just spoke to me. And I'm just thinking in that, I mean, even for iconic locations, like uh, as Erin had put in, that go and photograph it if you want to, but take it as an existing conversation and think about it as to how to extend that conversation. And that mm -hmm. that is how I do it. I do visit iconic locations. Why not? But I am done with photographing them from the usual vantage points. I can no longer like stand and place my tripods at those exact three, you know, tripod holes that people have done before me. So you know what I'm talking about because you said the same thing that um, you have photographed iconic locations, but they don't quite speak to you the same way that they used to. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, for me, it's, 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 Maybe not that they don't speak to me. It's just that the experience of photographing them, for me, um, it like having discovered um, scenes that spoke to me that I've never seen anyone else shoot before, mm -hmm. and then experiencing that versus shooting an icon, mm -hmm. it's a very different experience that mm -hmm. I've personally found a lot more pleasure in. Mm -hmm. um, that's not to say that I'm doing it better than everyone else. I'm just saying like, for me personally, I, I find a lot more, uh, I just get a lot more joy out of that approach than going to 
other locations, but I think some of it comes down to um, what your motivations are as an artist. And also like, I mean, there is some truth in that um, if you want to become well-known, I think, and, or if you want to, you know, sell workshops Mm -hmm. and if you want to uh, sell a lot of prints, I think um, it's kind of a no brainer recipe that if you shoot a lot of icons and you shoot them well, that those three things are going to probably follow to some degree. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of what drives people. Um, Not everyone, obviously, but I think, I think it is a driving factor for some people. Um, But so I think some of it does boil down to your, your motivations as a, as a photographer, because not everyone is doing it to satisfy some weird inner curiosity in their brain. Some people are just doing it because they want to, uh, be successful as a photographer right and it's also a two-way street because when you think about the photographers who are trying to photograph those iconic locations because there's a market for it you know artists need to survive and these familiar scenes are what people want to hang in their living room right Um, because they've been there right and what this is what the viewers want to purchase and that's what makes them happy um, I, I remember my conversation with Alexandre Deschamps, but like, I love that guy's work and I have spent a yeah. lot of time talking with them, talking with him actually in Dolomites. And, you know, he did say that thing that, you know, he does a lot of, uh, his work is very dark and moody and that's not something people want to hang in their living room. Right. <laughs> but there is not as, there is not enough money in the world that, you know, one can pay him to do anything otherwise. And that's what I love about him. He's such an emotional artist. It's really inspiring to see how he works. I mean, he would just be like lying down and doing nothing and just enjoying everything. And suddenly he gets up his camera and just runs like a mountain goat over something because he saw something. (laughs) And and I can't follow him because he's just so physically fit uh, to go after that. But you remind me of uh, something like, you know, Eric Fromm, another psychologist who had said that creativity requires the courage to go, let go of certainties. Mm-hmm. And, and that is indeed a courage that a lot of people cannot because they have to survive, they have to sustain. So I think really there is a way, there is absolutely a way to do both. Like you can cater to, you know, people what they want to hang in their living room as well as continue to foster your creative side oh absolutely i don't think there's um you have to do it one way or the other i think you can do both uh, right for sure <laughs> it's yeah. funny you're mentioning uh, alexander's work and I, I really like his stuff too it's you know dark and moody a lot of the scenes that i shoot here in colorado like sunrises from the tops of these mountains with all these mountains surrounding me it looks like uh a scene from lord of the rings like 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 a evil uh demon or dragon is going to fly up and right. kill you and like that you know a lot of people don't want to hang mordor in their living room either so i totally appreciate that but it speaks right. to me you know <laughs> um well let's uh shift gears a little bit i wanted to um ask you a little bit about um what it's like to be a uh, female in the craft of landscape photography and what some of the uh, perceptions are um, that come out of that and what some of the challenges you've experienced are? Huh. Uh, I have to think how to answer that question. Hmm. So I have to tell you that 
probably I am one of those who has been fairly lucky in terms of people I have hung out with. Uh, most of the time when I go to these landscape photography, you know, tours or I'll go out, hang out with my friends, they are all males. I'm the only female probably I'm there in the group. Mm-hmm. And I, am, I have been fairly lucky in that sense that they all have been very supportive. And I think some of the challenges that I have personally faced beyond like, you know, some minor things that are more intuitive um, are the challenges that are more... Um, are more like my own challenges that I I am a very like a tiny person let's say <laughs> okay uh, and you know I hang out with these guys who are like between 511 and 65 and they weigh anywhere between 175 to above 200 pounds so they are carrying the same amount of backpack that I am right except uh, my backpack is like 50% of my body weight <laughs> So uh, that is fairly challenging for me to keep up with them. But as I said, like, you know, people have been very courteous. I have seen that somebody will always look up for me, like, you know, let's wait for Sangeeta. She's behind. Um, If we are crossing a stream, like, I know I cannot cross it in some single jump. So there would somebody stop and wait for me to pull me over. Mm -hmm. But other than that, um, if you were to ask me that, have I ever felt discriminated as a female or in some way? I know that happens, but I haven't experienced it. Or if it, if it has happened, probably I, I have too thick of a skin not to perceive it. Okay. But I know it happens. I have heard it from other females. Um, I have heard how they have been treated, you know, on site, how the male, male counterpart would like, you know, wouldn't pay attention to during the composition of what their needs are and would totally diss them and go in front of them. But none of that has ever happened to me. But again, as I said, like, I don't think it does not happen. It does. Okay. And we, we really need to be um, stand out for, for the females, especially given, you know, um, some of the fiascos we have had with big camera companies. Um, <laughs> All right, I'm assuming you're talking about Nikon. <laughs> Yes, and you know what? Um, I am that happened, but I have to say that Nikon has worked really hard um, to kind of uh, go past that. Um, I am a Nikon shooter, so I can tell that to you that I feel I very much feel heard uh, within the Nikon community with the company. So um, I know they have been working very hard to promote females at this point. And I think it's a learning opportunity for every camera company at this point. Uh, I think I just read about Sony. They are starting some alpha women program or something. I don't know had that have happened if, um, if you know, Nikon would not have learned the lesson. Right, right, right. Well, that, that, was, in, that was a whole, in, that whole thing was very interesting to me because, um, it was specific, I think, if I remember correctly, it was um, specifically targeting an Asian market. Um, yes. And I think what a lot of people um, may may not realize is I think, like, uh, the mark. I mean, it was a marketing failure, but I think what they were trying to do is, like, they knew their, their marketing audience was probably, like, 80 or 90% men. And I... I think right. that's probably why they did that. I don't think it was intentional, um, but it was obviously was, you know, it was it was definitely a misfire. 
<laughs> well, yeah, but, but um, I'm just trying to remember what, um, you know, just because it has been done for ages for Nikon to do that, um, kinds of add to it, adds to it. it so um, I still thought that what they did was a disservice at that time. But the way they acted and, you know, uh, they have been trying to build up their reputation being a, not being a sexist, I, I, I would actually commend them for it. But I, I still feel that what happened, there is no excuse, you know, for for whatever reason, if it's an Asian market, so what? Um, even in Asia, like, you know, the women, being an Asian, like I'm an Indian, I was born and brought up in India. Um, we do need, we do look up to, you know, big companies like Nikon to promote right. us. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. If not, yeah, if not you, then who? <laughs> yeah, no, it's just interesting because it's like um, people don't realize that I'm sure that the people at Nikon, there's also a cultural component to all of that, um, that mm-hmm. we don't necessarily have a, a great understanding of in the United States in general. Like, you know, a lot of those societies are very patriarchal. Um, which I'm not right. saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying like, that's their culture. And, um, right. and when, you know, you're trying to appeal to a market that has a specific culture, like you're going to behave mm-hmm. in a different way. Um, right. and I think a lot of people didn't think about those kinds of things or they, maybe they did. And they're like, I don't care. Like they should have females in there. And I think that's, that's fair, but I think it's also like, uh, you know, nowadays people are so quick to, uh, jump to conclusions before thinking about like, okay, what, what are all the variables here? And like, do you think it was malicious? And maybe this is an opportunity to have a conversation instead of being outraged. I don't, you know, Um, anyway, I just, I thought, I thought that whole thing was very interesting. I had a, actually had a conversation with um, my friend Paul Rojas and his Mm -hmm. wife, uh, Mitch about that. And um, we, we kind of had the same, came came to the same conclusion. (laughs) Yeah, because right. they're both from uh, they're they're both from that part of the world as well. So right, and you know we don't know uh, who were the decision makers in that process. This is an Asian market. I'm so I'm I'm just assuming that you know the decision makers were from the Asia, and that's how it all went. But we all learn a lesson right. from that, and we move on. So I'm glad it happened actually, because it just um, it's an opportunity for a lot of people, a lot of other companies to learn from it. Yeah, so speaking of Nikon, um, I, I saw that you were on like the Nikon 100 list. Tell me what that is and how did how did you get to be on the list? Uh, I how did I get? I don't know. I mean, I know that um, Nikon tends to follow the work of a lot of photographers. They scan, I think, the Instagram accounts of people who use Nikon. Uh, so maybe that's how they found me. But but even okay. before that, I had twice I had licensed uh, my photographs with Nikon for their online marketing. So I'm assuming that I was already probably on their radar. And when, you know, this opportunity came, they extended it to me because they were already aware of my work. Cool. And uh, I'm wondering, have you seen um, any uh, positive kind of things happen in your photography career because of that? <laughs> Uh, um, hmm. well i mean it's funny you can think about think about it because like i always um i don't know i've had 
several um, things happened to me over the last probably year, year and a half that like maybe three or four years ago, I'd be like, well, if I could only have this thing happen to me, like everyone's going to know my work and I'm like, I'm going to be successful. And like those things happen. And then like, I don't really, there's no like, you know, like you don't sell like a billion prints or like, it's like, you're still the same photographer. It's just like, I don't know. It's funny for me personally. I don't know what your experience has been. Uh, (laughs) My thing is that I am one of the harshest critique of myself. Like in often in your podcast, the, there's often a conversation about uh, the social media and how people can be nasty. Sure. And my problem is actually reverse. People are so nice to me that I become oh, I become yeah. my own harshest critic. I tend to burn down my work, actually. I tear it down to the point that if somebody has any nasty things to say to me, it doesn't even rub off. It, just, it doesn't register with me. Um, so talking about if it made any difference it did but all of it is very temporary which is why i try to think of it as a sugar rush like you know i'll gain a few more followers on instagram or on facebook i'll people will reach out to me um i'll be contacted by a few more companies to buy the work and something like that but then um I am relying on the quality of my work to, I mean, that's not sustainable. It's the quality of my work, like, you know, that will keep me going. I am just as good as my last work. So I Mm -hmm. don't take Mm -hmm. these things too seriously. I'm happy that it happened, but I cannot just hang everything on it and like assume that it's going to bring, you know, that I can do crappy work for the rest of my life now. I've arrived. (laughs) I can, I can put my camera away. I'm done. Right, right, right. I just, which is why I'm always worried. Like if, if one of my photographs get published a lot or wins a lot of award, I start actually worrying if uh, people are going to recognize me as a one photograph wonder kind of thing. So Uh I'm constantly like working hard to come out with new work to like, you know, bring the creative side much more than my last one. Right. Well, I think that's a cool segue into one of the topics I wanted to bring up with you. And and, and that's um, artistic philosophy as a landscape photographer. Mm -hmm. I'm curious from your perspective what is that and what is yours hmm. so um you know if um <laughs> uh, i hear a lot of um complain on social media about people um po- about uh, post-processing photographs mm-hmm. and i think one of my major artistic philosophy there are two actually um one is um I am into landscape photography and it's it's a natural extension for my love for outdoors. So my love for outdoors will always trump kind of, you know, my love for photography. No matter what I do, uh, I I might not come back with a good photograph and that's fine with me as, as long as, you know, I had the thrill and adventure of being outdoors. Uh, and that's something that has helped me grow as a photographer. Uh, but the main thing is like... Um, about the post-processing part. I had to actually go on the internet and Google the term um, art. (laughs) What is an (laughs) art? 
because because i don't think myself i mean there has been a transition in me from where i went from being a photographer to being an artist the to thinking of myself as an artist and i uh-huh. think that when you are an artist it flows through you it shows um into every aspect of your life it's just not confined to photography it's your work whatever you are doing there is something about you that will convey to the people that you are artistic and so coming back to the word art you know i had googled up the term art and i think i had read something about it's it's the expression of human creative skill and imagination and that struck with me that it's saying human creative skill and imagination so when we think about photography like if we point our camera in one direction and press the shutter it's nothing creative and we are not even using our imagination here so that's a part of my uh, artistic philosophy that when you take a photograph um you have to put yourself into it um it's more about like you know i think i had said in one of my interviews that with time the soil i stand on has become less important and the soul i bring in my work is more important mm. and that is what the art is for me um it's what i present in terms of my creativity and imagination um and not just pointing my camera in one direction and pressing the shutter which i think gaital had mentioned that that just makes you an operator of the camera mm-hmm. and in that way you might just give credit to your car that you drove to get to the place to snap the photograph <laughs> so uh that's that's how you know my philosophy has been evolving over time but mm-hmm. then again philosophies change uh, as you evolve so maybe 5 years down the lane i might be saying something else but all in all um i am happy just to be outdoors and uh, the thrill and adventure of just being there is what will always be most important to me Yeah you know I think for me um for me the the artistic piece is like you're you're visualizing um something in your mind from a scene that you're standing before and you're weaving in your mm-hmm. interpretation of that place and that experience mm-hmm. and 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 the camera is just the tool by which you capture that that vision so like I know I remember uh this one scene i well not this one scene but I, i can think of several scenes that i've shot where um i knew that like i would have to combine like a couple of shots to stitch them together to get the composition i wanted and then mm-hmm. also like you know uh do some perspective blending and things like that and like i think that pre-visualization of your final product mm-hmm. is is kind of for me anyway for a landscape photographer that's I think a lot in the field anywhere that's where the true artistry comes in is that pre-visualization part. Right. Exactly. And as you evolve as an artist that becomes so important because then you're not uh, relying on the beauty of what's in front of you. You are like more inward oriented. You are more concerned with the inward significance of what's in front of you and not just the aesthetic um appearance. Mhm. Yeah, it's fun. I had to laugh earlier when you said you had to Google art cuz um <laughs> I remember uh there was a spe- I'll never forget it. There was a specific moment in time back in 
I think it was 2011. I was just really getting into photography. And uh, one of my coworkers said, like, you're an artist. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm just taking <laughs> pictures of stuff that I think looks cool, you know? And she's like, no, really, like, you're an artist. Like, look at your stuff. It's you're you're doing stuff that no one else has done. Like, you're an artist. And it's you're doing you're doing it in a way that no one else has done it before. And I'm like, no. And so I did the same thing. I went home and I Googled, like, <laughs> what does it mean to be an artist or what is art? And I remember I was like, I, I guess and like from then on like it, it has changed the way I think about taking pictures um you know it, like there are some times when I pick up my camera and I take a picture and it's purely for the documentation of a scene mm-hmm. and there's other times when I'm doing a lot more thinking and trying to use my left brain to really communicate uh what I'm feeling in the landscape that I'm at so I think they are two very different forms of photography um sure and (laughs) and i can understand the brain because i have done a lot of study in neuroscience (laughs) (laughs) absolutely well speaking of that i'm curious um as a person who studied uh, psychology um do you ever apply uh your uh psychology learning and the way that um just as a trained clinician has it ever, do, do the two things ever cross over? So like, for example, I spend a way more time than I probably should um, anal, psychoanalyzing other photographers. Like, why are you like <laughs> acting that way online? Like, why are you taking pictures that way and then lying about it? Um, like, I spend a lot of time doing that, which I really shouldn't, but it's just part of being a trained cl- clinician. Like, I, when I see pathological behavior, I'm like, there it is, you know, like, so do you ever have that kind of experience? <laughs> yeah, uh, Matt, I think it's a good thing that you mentioned that being a psychologist, I think, um, helps us in one way. We judge people a little less based on what we are seeing. We tend to take a step back and see why they might be doing it. And maybe we are more empathetic. Yes. But there, are, but there are times when some people are outright rude. There is just absolutely no other way of explaining it. Right. And even the most trained psychologist would probably feel mad at those times. But... <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. No. It's um, it's a burden and a curse. <laughs> right. Sometimes. And once, yeah, and once you are into that, that hat actually never comes off, whether you get paid for your time or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Exactly. <laughs> um, okay, a uh, couple more questions. Um, what what keeps you inspired? Oh, what keeps me inspired? You know, everything. I, I, I have to tell you, like, I photographed from my favorite photographers, songs, movies, paintings, poetries, books, everything keeps me inspired. Um, somehow something sticks with me and probably I look for that in my, um, in, during my visualization. And I often talk about this because for some reason, I, I think I have said this so many times in, in my, on my um, social media posts that growing up, like, you know, I had read a lot of uh, fairy tale books by Grimm's fairy tales. Mm-hmm. And those have still like, those still inspire me. Like when I'm visualizing, you know, things in my environment, there are these fairy tale scenes that go in my mind. Um, and I want to, 
bring them to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other times, as I said, like, you know, the artist in me gets inspired, like from everything. It's just a matter of time when the inspiration hits and you're ready to go and execute it. Um, so that's how I can answer for simply. Yeah. What do you do when um, you're feeling like uh, there's no nothing that's inspiring you right now? Like, do you do you just go out with your camera or do you just put your camera down for a while and then kind of let let things kind of simmer or, or kind of what's your approach to that? Because I think we all go through that. Absolutely. And I often talk about it and I never push it. Actually, there are there have been weeks and sometimes even months that go by when I just don't feel inspired to pick up the camera. Not at all. Me too. <laughs> and I and I think I'm very forgiving to myself for that. I'll just tell myself it's okay. I mean, I used to get very anxious. Oh my God, there's a sunset yeah. going on and I'm not going out and shooting it. And I think that was the hallmark of maturity in me. The day I realized that, okay, there is a sunset and there will be more sunsets. But right now I'm not feeling it. I won't be able to give my best. Yeah. yeah. But when the creativity hits and when I go out and when I shoot, it will be because I felt inspired and not because I felt compelled to do something. Uh, It came from something, you know, from somewhere within. And I will be much more happier doing that than forcing myself to pick up the camera and go out. Absolutely. I think some of my worst photography has come out of um, trying to force myself to take photos. So I totally understand what you're saying. And this, I mean, everyone who has gone out with me will tell you this, that if you ask them, they will tell you that even during, you know, I'll go out for four days with somebody and probably the first two days, I'm not even going to pull out my camera. And people will keep asking me, why are you not, you're not shooting? (laughs) Well, I'll shoot later, I'll shoot later. So it just takes me time. It it just, I'm not the kind of person who can go to one place and immediately pull out the camera. It takes me time to feel the place and go around, develop my own kind of, you know, visualization in mind, feel inspired, and then pull out my camera. Um, as yeah. the time is going by, I'm realizing I don't really need to climb um, certain hills to get the best uh, compositions. It's probably all around me and I can find it when I am inspired. Okay, well, I just had one more topic that I wanted to talk to you about. And um, that was uh, the the idea of workshops. And um, I know that you've taken several workshops over the last few years. And I just kind of wanted to get a feel from you, like, what are what have you gotten out of taking workshops? And um, I'm curious, like, what, what are you hoping to do with the knowledge and experience that you've gained from being on those workshops? Wow. So Matt, um, I think I had mentioned right in the beginning that the two people that I have taken workshops are Mark Adamus and Aaron. Um, And there were specific reasons why I decided to go with them because uh, they stand for the ideas that um, I had in my mind. I, I am more interested in landscape photography and, you know, the wilderness experience, going to places where I cannot go on my own. And these two photographers have, like, given their life into, you know, going far and away from the crowd and finding these really unique locations. So... Um, Right from the time you choose a photographer, it shows your artistic vision, like who you decide to go out with. There are photographers who will take you to just iconic locations and you just place your tripod and click. And that's not what I wanted. So, um, you know, um, 
I think like mentors are so important in shaping the photographer's vision. Uh, both Erin and Mark have helped me tremendously in like, you know, taking me to these locations and um, helping me find my own vision in some ways. Um, and, and in the beginning, I know I was asking much more questions. The first workshop, I think I went with Erin in 2016 in Death Valley. It's such a unique location. Uh, it's Death Valley is very difficult to photograph if you're not there in the right light. So I'm very thankful to them for showing me what the light can do to a certain landscape. And I remember like, you know, Aaron would just leave us in the playa and just walk around and I will be, I won't leave her alone. I'll be just asking her questions like, you know, what was her visualization about the questions about compositions and how the eyes should flow and the foreground and the background. And as the workshop kind of, you know, we went towards the tail end of the workshop, I found myself being more independent in terms of like, um, you know, coming out with my own vision. And the same went with Mark. Um, with Mark, I think it was not so much being in the field. It was just sitting with him and hearing him talk, which made the largest difference for me, just hearing his artistic philosophy, how, how he approaches the scene and really what goes into his location scouting. And these are the fundamental things that became the building block of who I am today. And I really still think that anybody who can afford to take one of these workshops should find a mentor and go out on them. And that's how they can really learn. You, you, we really stand on the shoulders of the giants who came before us. And you know, these are the people who can teach you, who can tell you, who can help you find your own vision. Um, this also gave me the confidence to go out on my own. And you know, every year since I've been taking this workshop, every year I try to find at least um, some time in my schedule to go out on my own and photograph and like use some of the same principles that, you know, I have picked up on these tours uh, with the masters. Awesome. Um, what, what process did you go through in trying to select a, a workshop mentor? Um, well, first of all, like I had you know, it has to be a landscape photographers. And there are so many of them. Um, and I remember like two two or three years ago, I was out on a road trip with a friend actually uh, in the Southwest. And I met a group of people who were on a workshop uh, in Antelope Canyon uh, of all the places. And they told me they're here on a workshop. And I was thinking, why would you want to come here on a workshop? Because anybody can pay in to get in here. <laughs> And then I met the same group that same evening, not the same evening, the next day in front of the Monument Valley where there were 22 oh buses God. standing. Like the uh, the Ansel Adams shot? Uh, was it the Ansel Adams shot? I don't know. You know where that um, uh, the tourist information information center is? Yeah. And, uh, then like, and then to the left of there is like those that, that kind of big foreground rock with the view of the mittens. Yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I meet the same group there and I had made friends with one of the women in that group. So I was talking with her and I said, so who is your workshop leader? Where is he? I want to see him. And she goes, oh, he didn't come. He just told us to come here and take the <laughs> photograph. He will meet us for dinner. Oh my God. So I knew that. I knew that that's not the workshop leader I want to go out with. Um, so yes. Yeah, so, you know, um, 
your artistic vision comes in place like you know right from the time you select your tour leader and for me it was mark there was just no question in my mind it has to be somebody like mark somebody like Aaron, who are trailblazers who go to places where nobody has been who can take you to places where you are totally removed from everybody else and you can really think about things you can walk around you can give yourself time to like really process and connect with the environment and come up with your vision and walk out with something that's meaningful to you um, rather than like you know placing your tripod like you know waiting for each person to walk away and then you place your tripod in the same place and take the same composition mm -hmm. yeah so i'm curious um what uh what would you say to folks that um that maybe have taken a lot of workshops um but haven't necessarily um i guess uh, ventured off the beaten path on their own. Like, you know, I feel like at some point, you know, you, you go on enough workshops and you, and you develop a lot of skills and you, and you hone, and you hone your, mm -hmm. your, your own personal vision based on what you've learned. But I, I feel like at some point, mm -hmm. um, maybe, maybe I'm just projecting a little bit. I, I feel like, mm -hmm. uh, I would, I would want to try to discover some spots on my own. Like, uh, have you started to do that? And, Yes, absolutely. And that is the whole goal of taking the workshop because it really trains your mind to think out of box. And now like, you know, your unique vision comes into life and you can be anywhere and you should be shooting on your own. I really think that the workshops are useless if you're not venturing out on your own. What use is that? I mean, it's almost like, you know, you go to these places, you're spending so much of your time and effort and money. And if you come back and you wait to go till the next workshop um, to put that in use, uh, that's that's a different thing. You are just then going from workshop to workshop. How do you exercise your own, um, you know, vision? You got you got to get out on your own. You got to explore on your own. Find your own vision. Um, otherwise, just you know, just going solely on the workshops. Yeah, it's good, but it's really you're not doing anything with it right. after that. Yeah, you know, I've I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I've noticed um, kind of an interesting, disturbing. I don't know if it's disturbing, but I've just I think it's interesting. You can tell me if you think it's interesting, but I've noticed there's a there's a growing number of photographers that um, that go on a lot, a lot of workshops over and over and over again, um, and they present their images. Um, online on social media and things like that as if um you know it was it was completely 100 percent uh their vision their effort uh that um that was it give them enabled them to capture that photo and there we all know the fact is like they got the photo because they paid money to go on a tour with a very uh famous photographer um which was never mentioned in their kind of um uh the, the, the image that they present online and none of the, there's no description saying, Oh, like I'm, I feel so lucky. I hashtag blessed. I got to go to this amazing location that hardly anyone has ever been to before Ooh. because of this really fantastic photographer who's spent like hours and hours and hours of research mm -hmm. and, and, and got us to this amazing location that no one ever gets to see. But then when they present the image, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm awesome. Uh, I shot this 
crazy awesome scene. Uh, <laughs> look how badass I am. Um, I just feel like there's some part of that uh, presentation that just feels inauthentic to me. And I'm curious if, if you've noticed that and, and what is kind of your take on, on that? Because, uh, uh, well, yeah, go ahead. I've asked like 15 questions right there. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh so, yes, I know what you're talking about because I have been out. I mean, I have been really out with a lot of people um, in the in the two, pe- two workshop leaders that I have been out. I have met a lot of um, participants and I, I can clearly see that there are participants who are just following their tour leader and, you know, just want to do exactly um, what the workshop leader is doing. And then I have seen people in the same workshop who are just such brilliant, talented photographers who just venture out. I mean, they did come in the workshop, but they are really going out of their way. They they are the first ones who even get up in the morning, <laughs> even before the workshop leader, and they are already uh-huh. out and about shooting. And they they have come back with some really brilliant images. And they are they are also the people who actually mm-hmm. lead their own workshops but not at the expense of this workshop leader, but they are doing their own thing. So um, it's a hard question. You know, you can, people can figure that out pretty quickly. I mean, people in the know, like you and other photographers know that, okay, I know your work and I know that you don't go out on your own. Uh, but then there are also other people, you know, you, you know that, okay, yeah, I know you have taken workshop with Mark Adams and you're doing such great work on your own. I mean, Mark will tell us that, you know, this guy, he has gone out and work on workshops with me, but just look at the images he's getting. I mean, even I couldn't get this composition and he walked out with this composition. Right. I think my day, my day was made when um, in Patagonia, I think we all were shooting and then I, I was left alone because I'm always left alone because I'm the slowest to walk down. Because it takes you like four hours to get your camera out, right? <laughs> it, that and I'm a slow hiker okay. <laughs> so by the time I am coming down everybody has checked in the hotel and they are drinking hot chocolate and then I come out and I mean I make sure that I am there before somebody sends out a search party for me <laughs> but, but uh, so I took I, I found actually this beautiful tree that I took a shot of and that actually got me a lot of accolades and when I brought that shot to Mark and I showed it to him and he was like oh my god Singita you got the best shot of this on the on this trip and that just made my day because that's something I did on my own yeah for sure so, so you know that feeling I want to continue with that feeling that this is my own you know I can be anywhere but I should have the capacity to produce something new so I don't mind people going on workshops but I really want them to walk out with something authentic something that they found on their own something that wasn't being dictated by you know the tour leader or something um will this happen I don't know does this happen all the time I don't know but I know exactly what you're talking about but you know we haven't walked in their shoes we don't know what they were thinking and feeling and what yeah oh for sure and and I I I would be um I would be silly if if I didn't admit that some of that question is fueled a little bit in my own jealousy (laughs) of um people's ability uh to pay as much money mm-hmm. as they have to 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 go to these places i mean i was really really trying to go on a, a patagonia workshop like four mm-hmm. years ago and uh you know i just i couldn't swing it like i work nonprofits, yeah. and um you know i just like i don't have the money to do that kind of stuff so um 
so yeah, I think some of it for me is like, I think fueled by ego and jealousy. I'm not going to lie, but uh, it just, to me, it's, it's just a little bit frustrating when I see um, people come back with some amazing images from locations that, that they otherwise um, just wouldn't have access to Mm -hmm. um, without, uh, I don't know, riding on the coattails of other people. So, um, and and I guess, I guess the, uh, I'm almost done. (laughs) I'm on a little rant, but I guess the, the other part of that is, um, you know, I think, I, I don't think it has to happen all the time, but I think it's the right thing to do to, you know, give credit where credit is due. Right. So that's all. <laughs> no, I agree. And I think like most photographers, if you were to interview them, like a lot of them would admit that their life started with, you know, their journey started by taking a workshop with Mark. Uh, I it's, it's really heartening to see how some people come to workshops with Mark with, and some of them will admit that they don't like Mark's work because of the processing and all that stuff, but they still want to come with him because they know that he knows the locations. Right. And then after the workshop, after having him talk, you know, you know, after having him, after hearing his artistic philosophy in person and stuff, how they walk out of that workshop totally transformed, totally like having a different opinion. Mm-hmm. Um and that's an experience I wish if everybody can afford to have, should have at least one workshop with Mark, anybody doing any kind of thing, anything related with photography. I highly recommend at least taking one workshop with Mark just to see how he works. He's not going to show you that, you know, you should be shooting this, he should, you should be shooting that. But the way, you know, when he rambles on on his own and, <laughs> and you hear him talk, there's, it just transforms your life. It transforms your vision. It makes you want to go back to all the work you have done in the past and want to reassess that. Mm. And that's what happened with me. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard that from several people that I, that I highly respect. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I, I'm not saying I disagree with that at all. I, I mean, again, I, I wish I could do that. Uh, you know, I, I'm just not in a position to be able to do that, but, uh, um, well, thanks for going down that uh, rabbit hole with me. I I appreciate <laughs> it. I, I think workshops are a very interesting topic that, um, you know, I think there's uh, some really interesting angles that can be examined. And I think we definitely tackled mm-hmm. a couple of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a difficult topic, but it's also very easy, actually, to go on workshops and, you know, learn the ropes. So, yeah. Um, if anybody could afford it, just find a good mentor and go with them. Cool. You know. So two more questions. Um, so uh, what advice would you have for other landscape photographers? Um, and, and the way I like to preface this is, you know, based on the name of the podcast, F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen, what advice would you have? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wow, that's a good way of bringing up Matt. Um, I would say that listening to your podcast has been very helpful. A lot of photographers that you know I would have wanted to hear, um, I have heard them in your podcast. So, um, and I do remember, as I said, like I always walk out with at least one thing from each of your podcasts. So I would definitely recommend people listening to your podcast. But one of the biggest advice I, you know, not just landscape photographer, for any photographer or for anybody pursuing any kind of art is that 
not to get complacent with it. Um, keep working. Everything is a work in progress. Um, not to give up also. Um, you and I probably know a lot of people who picked up the camera around the same time or maybe even before us and gave up too soon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so just to you know, keep going. And at some point they will find their own voice and get the help, whatever help is needed, whoever they want to be mentored by, find the photographers you like whose work speak to you and see if they are willing to take you on as, on a workshop or something. That's how I have learned. And that's how I, you know, just learning from, you know, these masters. And now I want to like, you know, find my, trying to find my own voice. After nice. This. Well, thank you. So who would you love to hear on the podcast? Um, you already actually got a lot of people who I would have wanted to hear. Uh, but I, uh, there is a California-based photographer, Charlotte Hamilton Gibb. I really love her work. Oh, yeah. Um, would love to hear from her. I met her briefly on, in Sierra, and I checked out her work. It was amazing. Um, the other person, actually, that I'm very curious about is Flores Van Bruegel. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there is another photographer, actually, whose name, whose work was actually, I was introduced to his work by Mark Adamus. And at some point, Aaron had speak, spoken also about him. Uh, Atif Saeed, he's from Pakistan. Oh, yeah. So I don't oh, know yeah. how to make that work. I am really curious about that guy. Yeah, he's got some really cool black and white shots of the uh, of the uh, Himalayans. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually his work is what inspires me to go to Pakistan. Yeah. Um, and lastly, you know, um, I met this guy, Matt Jakish, um, in, Patag in in Yukon, actually, in, in Mark's um, workshop. And I, I saw his work. He's doing some really great work. And um, he will actually be leading one of Max Rive's tour. I forgot it's for Iceland or Greenland. Okay. But he has a very interesting background. He used to work as an air traffic controller. <laughs> and oh, I interesting. Think he's, he, yeah, he has taken some time off to just, you know, <laughs> travel his way around the and world. de-stress probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. We did study that in psychology, that it's one of the most stressful jobs right. out there. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so these are the five people i can think of cool. um no, that's plenty a four okay. yeah that's yeah. that's plenty i appreciate it i've actually been uh semi stalking floris van bruegel um, um and i finally got it. he commented on a post i did on facebook uh and he said hey i like i like your stuff and i'll probably take you up on your podcast offer because i think i've sent him like four emails or something so yeah, I'm trying to get him on the podcast, so just be patient. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It was really fun to talk to you, and I think um, I've got a couple ideas uh, for, for the Patreon bonus episode um, mm -hmm. that I'll run by you, but uh, appreciate you hanging in there, um, and uh, it's been a pleasure. Sure. Same here. Cool. Well, thanks to Sangeeta for taking the time to visit with us today. To find out more about her, go check out the liner notes on my blog post at www.mappainphotography.com. Just a reminder, um, really loving the support people are leaving on the uh, for the podcast in the iTunes store. Um, writing those reviews and leaving awesome comments and feedback is super appreciated. 
Um, it's helping people find the podcast and spread the word, and that's what it's all about. So thank you so much. Thanks to Have Teacup for their five-star review. You're awesome. You can also support the show by making a $1 per month contribution through Patreon at patreon.com slash listen. This week over on Patreon, Sangeeta and I discuss presenting yourself authentically on social media as well as uh, sharing locations and the responsibility that those with great influence wield. Hope you enjoy that episode. I thought it was a fascinating conversation. Uh, thanks to our newest patrons, Jeff Langska and Timothy Kirk. You guys are awesome. And as always, uh, check me out on social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Matt Payne Photo, Matt Payne Photography. I love hearing from the listeners. Um, you guys are why I do the show. So thanks so much. Talk to you next week.